0: Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa
1: Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Hey friends, welcome to episode 102 of the Adoption Connection Podcast. This week we're talking about siblings and when we hear from you guys, siblings, all things siblings are one of the most requested topics to train to talk about. Uh, The questions about siblings are frequent, and there are so many things to talk about in this kind of broad siblings category. But today we wanted to talk specifically about whether or not we should keep biological siblings together when considering placements for foster care and adoption. And we brought to the podcast, Sue Badeau, who's a good friend of ours and just brilliant on so many levels. She has also been on the podcast speaking about race and adoption.
0: Yes, Sue is an expert on so many topics, but she's perfect for this interview because She and her husband, Hector, are the lifetime parents of 22 children, two by birth and 20 adopted, and they have also served as foster parents for more than 50 children in three states and as a host family for refugee youth. So they have parented groups of siblings multiple times. Sue has a degree in early child development and elementary education from Smith College, and she's worked in child serving fields as a professional for 33 years working in adoption foster care juvenile justice children's mental health and education she's written curricula for parents and judges and attorneys she's pretty much done everything she's a very knowledgeable person and i'm just so happy that we got to have the opportunity to talk with her about the topic of siblings Hello, Sue. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. Hi, Lisa. I'm really excited to be sharing this time with you. Well, we got to spend a lot of time together when we were both speaking at the Refresh Conference in Seattle that got canceled after we were there because of coronavirus. And so that was just so wonderful for me to spend some time with you. I mean, you're an incredible expert on so many topics. And I came home and thought, wow, how many different things could I interview Sue about? (laughs) So, but I'm really excited about the topic of siblings, which is what we're going to be talking about today. But before we do that, will you just share your very remarkable story of being an adoptive parent?
2: So I'm actually talking to you now from my uh, small home in uh, the Philadelphia area. My, you'll hear that my husband and I raised many, many children, but a couple of years ago, uh, the last of them got into their own adult independent life, and we uh, moved out of our big house into a small uh, two-bedroom apartment. And then right after Seattle, he went to visit uh, one of our sons, thinking he'd just be able to come home, and then everything got shut down. And so I'm literally alone really for the first time in my life. I don't think I've ever, I've been alone on a trip or, you know, I work, I travel for work, but I've never lived alone in my entire life. I grew up with my parents. I dated my high school sweetheart. So we both went to college, but got married immediately after college. And, um, and then we started having all these kids that I'll mention in a moment. And, uh, so I've absolutely never lived alone. So these last three weeks have been um, very strange for me to really be completely alone. Um, so it's nice to see your face and hear your voice.
0: I did not, I did not know that happened. I can't believe it. So that's, that's the, you know,
2: that's the most recent part of our story, but it's very different from the other part of our story where I never had a moment alone. Never mind. We because and, and it really is connected I mean our story is very deeply connected to our topic of siblings today so this will lead in quite well because we our permanent lifetime family uh, includes 22 children that are adults but uh, when people say how did you end up with 22 children uh, first I have to say it wasn't the original plan and I'll mention a moment about that in, in a second but how it got to be 22 really was because of siblings. We did adopt sibling groups three separate times, big sibling groups, um, two of them at least were big. So our numbers kind of went, uh, you know, kind of in one swoop. So the the numbers in our family and the topic of siblings go hand in hand here. But um, yeah, high school sweethearts, like I said, and we always talked about wanting to uh, do something with our adult lives that was gonna involve children and helping children. We weren't quite sure what that would look like. But soon after we got married, right out of college, we had a bunch of things happen in our life, and our church, some presentations that just got us into this idea of becoming adoptive parents, possibly becoming foster parents. We signed up at a local agency. I was still barely, not even 21, I don't think, asked if we could be considered as foster parents and they asked us would we take teenagers (laughs) and we had been married you know less than a year we we were young we didn't really hardly know anything and but we said sure so our beginning of our foster parent journey was with teenagers and we ended up uh through a series of different agencies we worked with and Um, fostering 23 teenagers over the next just few years you know about five or six at a time Uh, and they all stayed with us varying amounts of time and so many of them were still even in touch with now but during that period we realized that so many of these in fact I even totaled it up once the teenagers that were coming to our home they were spending um time with us but we were like their 11th 12th 13th foster care placement. Um, they had been in foster care 11, 12, 13 years before coming to our home. And so we really started thinking about what is this idea? What do kids really need? And we came up with this concept that they really needed to be able to set down roots, you know, in a family. And of course that's the theme of what is known in professional world now as permanency, but this, we were still young. We didn't even know the lingo. And in fact, even in the professional Circles, that word wasn't yet being
0: used. Can Tell us what year that was approximately when you started fostering.
2: Absolutely. So we got married in 1979 and we were foster parents by 1980. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it wasn't, you know, nobody was talking permanency. In fact, back then, believe it or not. If you had a foster child in your home and you started to get attached to them or started to bond or day with you, that in itself was a reason to move them. It was considered inappropriate to attach or to let the child attach to you. So that's how far things have changed. But we saw that that's what children needed. So we decided to shift in the direction more of adoption and or helping children uh, reconnect with their biological families but having permanency one way or the other. So as we did that, we, we sort of weaned out of the foster care world for a while, and we had our two birth children. We had adopted our first two, and our house felt empty after all those years of having all these teenagers. So we went to visit some friends uh, uh, in another state that we had only been corresponding with, who had a large family of 12 kids that included two sets of siblings they had adopted. And we said, wow, that's, we, ne- we never even really knew about that. And we both have very close relationships with our own siblings. And we, we just started learning about all the siblings that get separated through the foster care system or even internationally through orphanage and other, you know, situations. So we really became focused on siblings. We started looking and saying, you know, God, show us what, what siblings need a family? And so it kind of went from there. We adopted one sibling group of four kids, then we adopted another sibling group of six, and all six of them were teenagers at the time they joined it literally from thirteen up to nineteen <laughs> um, when they joined our family. And our last set of siblings was was a set of, of two, so that was a smaller one, but three sets of siblings, six, four, and two, that that pretty much is how our family grew so big so quickly. So over the years we adopted three children with terminal illnesses and um they all three of them have now passed away. Uh, blessing for us, they all lived twice as long as what the medical prognosis was. So the life expectancy was that they wouldn't live to be more than eleven, twelve, thirteen. They all lived into their twenties, but um they now they now are all um are now passed away and they're in their eternal home, but um, we miss them very much all the time. So we have 19 still living children who all are adults and who all live in one way or another, uh, independent from us. They don't live totally independently. Most of them, we had many children with a lot of challenges. So we do everything from, you know, just check-ins and emotional support to managing and helping them with their rent and their money management. Uh, But all of them are doing amazingly, better than what you know people thought they might do so they're you know they're working except for right now most of them have lost their jobs unfortunately you know and they're they have their lives and their relationships so so we're at this side of of that story on our journey we have grandchildren and even great-grandchildren.
0: Wow wow great-grandchildren that's amazing how many so you have 19 living children and how many of them have a spouse?
2: At Christmas time, when I make my list of just our children, their spouses or partners and their, their children, it comes to over 90 people.
0: Wow. <laughs> That's what I was wondering.
2: <laughs> without including any of our siblings or, you know, cousins or any other relationships, just that. yes.
0: Right. Wow. Okay. Okay. And how old are your grandchildren? Like from oldest to youngest?
2: Yeah, so our youngest grandchild is um, a baby, still just a year old, and our oldest is just about 30. She's turning 30 this year.
0: Okay, so you became very passionate about keeping sibling groups together. Now, did all of your, like in the sibling groups, did they all come at once or was it a situation where you started, you had some of them and then you became aware of others and they joined? How did that happen?
2: So interesting, each, we adopted siblings three times, and each time there was a little variation on that answer to that question. So the first time it was four, four siblings. They were together at that point in the same foster home, and we adopted them all together. They all came at once when they joined our family. And they were school-aged children. They were ranged from about five up to 10 years old, two boys and two girls. The next time we adopted siblings, the older teenagers that I mentioned to you, there were six of them. They were all in separate placements to begin with. Uh, we 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 were called by the agency about just one of them, the youngest. And it was as we began exploring why did they think we would be a good family for him, we started learning that he had all these other siblings. So then we started asking, well, what about them? And we got really interesting answers like, well, first of all, two of them technically had already aged out of the foster care system because they were 18 and 19. Uh, so they said, well, two of them, you know, they already aged out. They don't need a family. They're independent. And then they said, and then the next three, we're going to prepare them for that. We're, working, we're not working to get them adopted. We, they don't need a family anymore. They need to learn skills, you know, so they'll be ready for independence. So we have them in those kind of programs. So really the only one that still needs a family at this point is the 13-year-old, not only because he's the youngest, but he's, he's deaf and he has other challenges. And so we know he's really going to need a family. So it took a lot of advocacy, actually, to get them restored back together. First, we uh, we really were advocating with the agency, like we think the siblings should have the chance to be together. Oh no, you know they're fine; they're all separate; they're used to it. And when our initial efforts at advocacy didn't quite hit the mark, we tried another technique that uh, I often teach people. kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, way that I phrase it, but it really, it, it really is an advocacy strategy, is that when someone who's in power uh, says something or wants to do a course of action that you don't agree with, but you know you're not going to win the argument, then just go ahead and sort of pretend to agree with them. Uh, basically, you don't have to say you agree with them, but just say, okay, I understand you've made your decision or you know best or something along those lines. And then work your agenda Your advocacy agenda sort of subversively on the side. And so that's what we had to do. And we said, Well, okay, you've made your decision, but before we adopt him, the youngest one, his name is David, we'd like to have at least a gathering, a party, if you want to call it that, a going-away party, where you do bring all his siblings together so at least they can meet us and know who is who are these people taking our brother. And so they did agree to that. And then once we had the siblings there, we said, you know, we don't believe in splitting up families. And so if your brother's coming home with us, we consider all of you family now. And, you know, if you ever want to visit, you can visit. If you ever want to call, you can call. And, oh, if you ever should want to join the family in a more official way, just let us know. We'll figure it out. Wow. <laughs> wow. So once the kids had that message, one by one, they started saying, I want to join that family. I want to be part of I want to be back with my siblings. And so they would talk to their worker and, you know, their worker felt like, oh, you went behind our back. But at this point, the child, the teen was saying, I want to do this. So then they were working with us. And so in that case, the six of them, they, the youngest one came first and then the next two came. And then the oldest three each came one by one by one. Um, and on their even the two that technically had already aged out of care, They chose to come on their own. They didn't have to have any agency approval. They just made up their mind, hey, I want to do this too. And even the oldest one, who by the time he really was fully kind of engaged and embedded with the family, he said, you know, can I be adopted too? And he was 20 at that point. But we went ahead and we did his legal adoption in court.
0: You know, that was 30 years ago, and he's a great son. And did all of your kids – after, did, they all, did he change his last name? Did they all, did they all have your last name? Uh, most of them did. Most of them wanted to all have the
2: same family last name. But uh, we ended up hearing from our oldest son that he's, he, and he's kind of said it this way now, he said, I believe I'm, you know, you're meant to be my family. I'm happy to be your son. But in reality, I could have probably been adopted like six years earlier if the caseworkers would have ever told me I didn't have to change my name. He was a junior to his father. His father had been murdered. He wanted to keep his name. That was important to him. And no one had ever explained that to him. And so he had been fiercely resisting any efforts to get him a family or get him adopted. So, you know, we're all thankful that he's our family and our son. But it's unfortunate when kids lose their opportunity to have a family for a lifetime because of misinformation or myths or just... People, you know, not knowing things. So, um, so he didn't change his name. Uh, A couple of the others didn't change their last name. Uh, So, so a few of them have different last names than us. A few of them uh, wanted to use the opportunity of adoption to change their first name. (laughs) So, we have a couple of children who changed their first name. Uh, Several of them didn't have really a middle name, and they many of them kept their birth last name as a middle name. But in addition, um, some of them took on a new middle name uh, when we did the final, you know, legal adoption. So we have a whole bunch of different naming <laughs> circumstances that came up in our family.
0: Wow. Now with your, and then, so that's your, you had the sibling group of four, they came all at once. You had the sibling group of six, six that kind of came little by little. And then your last sibling group, how did that one happen? My
2: last sibling group, which also happened to be, you know, the, the last, two of the last members of the family. So we already had a very large family by the time they came. One of them was the child, one of our children with terminal illness. He had a very uh, significant terminal illness and he was already six years old and and children with this illness aren't expected to live possibly past eight, somewhere eight to 10. Um, So he also had had other challenges. He was born with fetal alcohol uh, exposure and had then been in some foster placements where he had been Maltreated. So he, besides the terminal illness, he just had a lot going on. By this time, we already had a son, Wayne, with the same actual underlying disease, the same terminal disease. Wayne didn't have all those other factors, but he had the disease. It's a very challenging disease to manage in the home, and it's also very rare, so even doctors usually haven't heard of it. It's called San Filippo syndrome. You probably haven't heard of it.
0: (laughs) Nope, not heard of it.
2: it. It involves children that need a lot of chronic almost 24 hours supervision and care, there's a lot of things in a household that can make it challenging, except if you have a household like ours where you're already doing that. <laughs> so um, the social worker, his social worker, Adam, somehow through a network of social workers heard that our family was already raising a child with this illness and she contacted us about him. So we weren't really certain at that point that we were even adding any more children to our family. We sort of felt like it was complete, but After a lot of thought, prayer, discussion, family meetings, everything you do, um, we realized that he was, you know, we wanted him to join our family. And so we said yes. And that's when we learned he actually had two siblings. Uh, One of his siblings was already adopted into a relative family in kinship care, but the other sibling was in foster care and younger than him and healthy. So, We said, well, we'll take both of them. We we have this passion about keeping siblings together and all of that. In this case, basically they said, no, you're kind of a second-rate family because you're so big. We are happy to place Adam with you because he has no other options. We just need anybody for him. But we would never place a healthy young child like his brother in a large family. There's so many other options for a healthy young child. Um, that we don't need to resort to a large family like yours that was one thing that they said second thing they said was besides the brother doesn't have any special needs and so he shouldn't be saddled with having to grow up in his family with not only this brother but all your other children with all their special needs like he shouldn't have to be saddled with that he deserves a family where he doesn't have to be in that situation so those were the two of the reasons that we were given why they didn't want to keep those siblings together. Uh, we, we really agonized over it because we knew that Adam really didn't have much time left, that he was terminally ill, that he needed a family who understood his condition. But we strongly believed these brothers needed to be together as well. Anyway, we ended up saying yes about Adam and figuring, well, we, you know, we'll try to at least do our best to keep the other siblings in contact if there's uh, nothing else we can do they placed the sibling, um, the younger sibling, whose name is Aaron, they placed him in a a single parent family that wanted a healthy young child, you know, they placed him. And so we didn't really have um, the advocacy tools or strategies that we had with our other siblings. So we kind of felt like we had to let go and just hope that it would all be for the best. And then six months later, so Adam did come and join the family. And six months later, we got a call like, Hey, you know what? That adoption is disrupting with the, with his younger brother. He's changed. He's not this sweet little kid with no special needs. He's like got all these behaviors and he's got all this stuff going on. And this family just feels that they can't deal with it. Well, of course he had been traumatized, like how many multiple times and then being torn away from his brother who he adored. They kind of said, okay, now that he's this, this, Problem, child. Now your family's okay for him, you know. But um, but we we welcomed him, and he he is he became at that point and continued to be because we didn't have anymore our youngest child, and he's he'll be turning thirty this year. But um, you know, he he's um, we love him very much too, and yeah, he did go through a lot of trauma in those early years that the workers weren't really aware of because they were so focused on his brother. He's had a lot of work to do and a lot of healing to do as well.
0: Okay. There are so many different directions, so many different questions I could ask you. And I do want to focus on siblings, but I want to know, how did you manage all, I mean, all the medical needs of your children? Because I'm guessing that not just your terminally ill children had medical needs. You probably had kids with other unique special medical needs. On a practical way, how did you do all of that? You know, it's really interesting. Well, for one
2: thing, we definitely knew that one parent had to be full-time at home all the time. And in our household, just because of the nature of the kinds of care the children needed and our personalities and everything else, we knew that it was best for uh, my husband, Hector, actually to be the full-time at-home parent, and I continued to work. I worked in this field. So, But always having someone full-time at home was essential. That was one thing. The second thing is the our kids, those three with terminal illnesses, and several of our others did have just a quite a wide range of lots of special needs and challenges, but on a day-to-day basis, they were healthy. We weren't really dealing with... Medical was the least of our worries. <laughs> okay. Uh, medical was really not the, the biggest challenge, except for occasionally. We had a couple of times when one of our children was hospitalized and touch and go and something happening, but then they'd get better and come home. Um, most of the time it was the the emotional healing, the behaviors that relate to trauma, the uh, intellectual and cognitive challenges that most many of our children have, um, other kinds of mental health challenges beyond just the trauma-related ones, um, school issues, <laughs> you know, so most of the time it was those kinds of things that was really challenging. Medical, you sort of, you learn what you to do, like we were able to do in home, so you learn for a child that needs medication or tube feeding or whatever, you learn how to do it, and then you do it, <laughs> and it just becomes part of your routine, um, just like learning to braid somebody's hair or something, like you learn it, you do it, and I don't mean to make that light of it, it's still a little bit challenging, but it's like a skill you learn and then you do, and it's pretty consistent from day to day. Uh, whereas all those other kind of needs the constant calls from the school how the different trauma levels and behaviors of kids affect when they interact with each other how it weighs on you you know finances appointments all of those paperwork um, all of those things with all the other challenges uh, was much more difficult or as one time my husband put it our children with the with the most severe medical needs, they also were in uh, diapers their whole life, like they never uh, outgrew the need for diapers, and someone once asked, I'm like, oh, that must be so depressing to have kids that are like never going to be out of diapers, Uh, you're going to be changing diapers for the rest of their lives, and my husband said, you know what, physical diapers are easier to change than emotional ones.
0: Mm. It's so true, right? Oh, that's, that's good, it's really, really true. Okay, so you and Hector are passionate about keeping siblings together. Can you, other than just the, the good idea of it, can you tell us why that is important for children?
2: One of the things, if you have, if, for anyone out there listening, for you if, you, if you have a sibling at all, even one, then what you can realize, especially as you get you know, older in your life, your sibling relationship, for better or for worse, is the longest lasting relationship you will ever have in your entire life. Parents usually predecease your siblings, so usually your sibling relationship is going to last longer than the one you have with your parents. Uh, most often you start, you know, having your, your siblings start being part of your life before you even get in school, so you, your siblings are with you before even your first best friend that you met in kindergarten. You know, certainly you have your siblings long before you meet your spouse or have children of your own or any of those other really long-lasting relationships in your life. Your sibling relationship is the longest of all of them. And so there's something really unique about that sibling bond that, I mean, when we talk about permanency and adoption, like that's the permanent relationship. And there's so much research about how uh, much we learn from our siblings about social skills. Even when we have rocky relationships with our siblings, we learn negotiating. We We learn a lot of social skills from siblings. We um, they're the only ones who really know and kind of have walked with us through certain parts of our life, even if we experienced it differently. Uh, one thing I sometimes have said is, no two siblings have the same two parents. I mean, even if you grow up in your biological home, you each experience your parents differently. But somehow, your sibling at least knows that journey that you've walked through. They've been there with you for it. Sometimes they're your first protector, or you're their first protector. Um, so there's this 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 cord that is just so much different than and and deeper and longer than any other relationship that we have in our life so uh to to break that or to lose that the trauma is really more than than sometimes it gets taken too lightly so that that's one really important reason for any siblings to have the opportunity to stay together but then when you talk about siblings who have also been through other kinds of trauma they've been Collectively uh, neglected, abused, abandoned, whatever circumstance led them to, to be either in an orphanage or in foster care then um, then wow, they've already had so many losses to just inflict another loss on them can be can really be overwhelming and can create the depth of that wound that is so much harder to heal, uh, so much harder to bounce back from. And then another reason is that even if siblings were separated for reasons that seemed um, wise at the moment, like they they were harming each other, even if they were you know doing things uh, harmfully, hitting each other, beating each other, you know things like this, um, if you just simply separate them, you haven't really addressed the root of the issue, and so they might now be going on through life in two separate. Circumstances, but without having addressed the root of that issue, uh, they're going to continue to play out things in other relationships. They're going to, you know, they're not they're, they're going to have difficulty healing from that, even that early relationship. So, is that all possible? Even in those situations, I like to try to keep siblings together, and then work with the family and work with the siblings to keep everyone safe, of course, but to help address the underlying issues and help them heal together uh, in safety
0: rather than separately.
2: So those are some of the reasons.
0: (laughs) And you may have just answered this a little bit, but what would you say to people who say siblings have trauma bonds and so they, it's not good to keep them together. Would you just, well, you answered it a little bit, but I'll put that out to you anyhow.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. It's, it's a, another way of saying, so they have to heal separately. And to me it kind of relates to the, what I also hear a lot in social work, uh, not, related to siblings, just related to children with trauma histories in general, that, um, oh, this child needs to heal from their trauma before they're ready for a family. Like we have to get them into some treatment program before they're ready. And you hear this child's not ready for a family. Um, And when I look at all the research and when I look at my life experience, like you heal in relationship. You don't heal over here and then come have a relationship. While you're healing in that relationship, there's going to be hard times and the family that's help, you know, the family that you're healing with needs a lot of support, but you're going to heal in that relationship and that family. And so similarly siblings, um, I think they're, they're going to heal best from their trauma. Usually, you know, there's always exceptions and I'll grant that there are some instances where siblings are better served if they're not together. They're, I'm not saying this is a hundred percent rule, but I think it's more the rule and the, rare time would be an exception, Uh, and that they can heal from that trauma when given the right care, the right family setting, the parents get support. Uh, They can heal from that trauma better together
0: than separately. So you brought up the topic of safety. With a lot of children and older children, I know many, many families deal with how do we keep our children safe because they have, so many of them have been so traumatized and wounded and they may have behaviors that aren't safe. So how did you do that in
1: your home with so many kids? Hey friends, we want to pause the interview to make sure you know about our free compassion challenge for the discouraged adoptive parent. This is an on-demand video training, so you can rebuild your compassion for your child and enjoy parenting again. In this free
0: video training, we'll introduce you to blocked trust and blocked care. We'll help you understand why your child pushes you away, why you're not a bad parent because you're losing patience, and shed the feelings of shame and guilt. There is hope. You can regain compassion for yourself and your child. To grab this free training, head to theadoptionconnection.com compassion. Now let's hop back into our interview. So how did you do that in your home with so many kids? Well, we did our best
2: <laughs> and yep. we, had, we had strategies and things that we tried and things that we learned maybe weren't working as well and we had to make changes or you know alterations. So I will say off the top to answer that question, we weren't perfect um you know we we miss the mark sometimes and i think part of that could be a factor of having a lot of kids but part of that is a factor of just being a parent you have one child you can't 100 percent keep them safe all the time i mean it's just part of being a parent uh, and then it does get a little multiplied if you have more kids, but you know we 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 were there, we were present, you know, like I said, we had one parent home all the time. We made very thoughtful and careful decisions about who would have which rooms, bedrooms, where they would be spaced in the house, where we would be in relation to that. Um, you know we did a lot of um, we did a lot of family meetings and other strategies where we just tried to generate. Um, communication among everyone in the family. We gave a lot of encouragement. Uh, Luckily, we learned early on that children learn better, all of us humans, we learn better from encouragement than from, uh, you know, correction. Uh, So we need correction at times, but we learn better when someone can notice the good things that we're doing and reinforce those. So we even started when our kids were, when we had a lot of kids, including some that were younger uh, at home, we had a, a thing called a prize jar And we had a a little award called Caught Being Good uh, because kids are so used to being caught being bad. So we we called it Caught Being Good and we had a prize jar that, hey, caught you doing something good. That's great. You shared or you didn't hit. You know, yesterday when that situation came up, you hit your brother today, you didn't hit him or whatever. And so you can pick a prize out of the prize jar. There were simple things. It might be a little snap treat. It might be a little coupon that said you get... Stay up an extra half hour tonight, or just different things like this. But um, but they they really enjoyed that; they loved that, and um, that helped a lot. But also because the siblings could give them to each other, and so then if they gave one to someone else, then that was also something that was good. They also got a reward uh, for doing that, and we we called that the pat on the back. We even printed out little. Um, cards that said pat on the back and and kids could point out when they saw one of their siblings doing something well doing something good they could give that sibling a pat on the back so it became contagious and after a while uh, we had to you know phase it out a little I mean we'd be handing out prizes like 500 times a day but it it, when we phased it out a little we said you know we're gonna um, everyone can be you know, doing pats on the back, we'll, we'll talk about them once a week at our Sunday family dinner, and we'll talk about the good things or something, so we were still doing it and encouraging it, but by then, it had become more of a habit, um, so, so that was one thing, I mean, sometimes we had to do things like, um, find ways, you know, some of our kids that had these two, these two with the in Filippo syndrome, they would get up in the night. before The syndrome actually causes you to lose functioning. And eventually they were not able to walk and they were wheelchair bound. But before that, kids with this disease also don't sleep in long stretches. So they would just be up during the night and they could get out of their rooms and wander around. And we usually try to have someone up as much as possible or in and out checking on them. Of course, we had listening devices. But sometimes we also had to have special kinds of gating so that they couldn't even get out of their rooms, you know, during the night. So, I mean, we had to do physical alterations to create safety as well as the, the sort of parenting ideas. But it was always on our mind. It was always on our mind. And so we were always trying to figure out how
0: we could do it better. Did you ever have, I mean, you're human, so I guess you did. But did you ever have times when you thought we're in so far over our heads. I mean, and were you ever able to get help outside of just you and your husband doing it all?
2: So yes, yes, yes. (laughs) The worst time that I have felt um, we're totally over our heads happens to be right now. (laughs) Okay. Our kids are all adults now and they all have, they all live in different households. They don't live with us. As I told you at the beginning. And even with all those kids that we adopted over the years and our birth kids, and even with so many of them having all the challenges that they had, we never had everyone in crisis at once, like all through the years, you know, maybe we might have five in crisis, which was, you know, enough. uh, But usually it was even less than that. We never had like every single person in the whole family in crisis at once. And now they're all adults. They're on their own. Things seem good. and yet. Because of what's happening in the world right now, more than half of our kids have lost their jobs and they have types of jobs in food service and restaurant work where, and they're, you know, they live like literally paycheck to paycheck. So they're really struggling. Plus the loss of the job, the loss of the routine, loss of the schedule, that's emotional, you know, it's trauma triggers, all of that. We all know that and many of them have kids that are now with them and then some of our kids who are have really high functioning and have like amazing jobs in healthcare, in internet service in things that are very um uh essential and in demand and they have added stress right now in crisis and maybe their kids are at home but they're still having to work so literally every single person in our family is in crisis right now And we said wow that's what we never really anticipated with such a large family is that They'd all be in crisis at once at any point in time except, and not living under our roof. So feeling so powerless and not being able to do anything about it or not being able to physically go out and do anything about it. Uh, so that that this has really been a challenging time for me in regard to your question. But prior to that, yes, we had times over the years. And luckily, thankfully, the biggest blessing I think that we had in our entire uh, parenting journey was that I can only think of maybe one or two times when Hector and I both sort of had that feeling at the same time. <laughs> so usually if one of us was totally overwhelmed, the other one wasn't. If one of us was feeling like, what are we doing? The other one was, we got this. And so we could give each other breaks. We could, I could say, he was the full-time at-home parent, but there were some a few times when I'd say, go take a weekend, go visit your friends in another state. I got this. That was hard on me because that wasn't my skill set but i could handle it for a few days and same thing the other way around so we did have those moments for sure and we did have some real severe crises i mean grief when we had children die but other you know we had teen pregnancies we had um arrests we had Things that are hard, I wasn't arrested. Well, I, <laughs> anyway, another story. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't arrested. I'm talking, talking about kids. Um, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we had a lot of really big challenges, um, but they didn't all come at once. And we, we were able to kind of usually be there for each other as well. Uh, we had supports. We had supports through friends, through church, through neighbors, we didn't really have much professional. I mean, our kids went to school, and we had some of them had very good teachers and good aides and things like this. Uh, we until towards the uh, our children who were terminally ill towards the end of our, their lives, we had some visiting nurses uh, who came in and helped with the overnight care in particular, so that we didn't have to stay up all night and be with everybody all day. Uh, but other than that, we didn't have um, in home other adults. Have um, professional you know services like that uh, most of the time, but we did have uh, we did have support, we did have people we could turn to we did have opportunities for our kids to get experiences going to a summer camp or different things that came up like that that helped them and us, <laughs> so you have to really work at it and it 's often a patchwork quilt piecing together the supports, but we were able to do that
0: would you say that your faith has played a part in both the decisions you made about your family, but your ability to sustain and what you are doing even now?
2: Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, the, the, right from the beginning, that the, in fact, I told you we ended up with 22 kids, but it wasn't our plan. Uh, we dated in high school, we dated in college, we thought we were going to you know, have some kind of life that involved working with children and as we started to learn about kids needing homes and needing families and thinking about maybe adoption or foster care, we came up with this plan. We said, you know what, we're going to have two kids and adopt two kids. We told God that. We told everybody that. We're going to have two and adopt two. In fact, um, it was na- we had adopted just our first one, one child, and we had our one birth daughter. And it was National Adoption Month um, in our town, little town in New England where we lived. And somehow we got picked to be like the family to be interviewed for a newspaper article. So at that point, we still, we only had two children. One was born to us, one was adopted. And we made this quote in the newspaper. Oh, our life plan is we're going to have to, we're going to adopt to, we're halfway there. <laughs> my parents would pull that article out from time to time over the years, like, oh, remember you said this. Uh, but it was our faith. And it was, you know, we really felt that as we looked... You introduced me at the beginning of the segment saying that I'm an expert in many things. Well, the way I got to be an expert in many things is basically by saying, hmm, we've never had experience with a child in a wheelchair. Hmm, we've never had experience with a teen pregnancy. And boom, we got one. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, since the humor was always like, uh, I'll give you one of those. So it got to a point where like we'd hear about somebody dealing with something and we did want to say, We've never dealt with that because we were worried that as soon as we said those words out loud, we would get a chance to deal with it. But um, really, it totally was our faith. And that's why even though we have 22 that uh, became our permanent family, believe it or not, we said no also over the years. People think we just like were addicted to it out there. We just said, yeah, we couldn't say no. We said yes to every child, any caseworker called us about and that's not true. We've thought carefully, we've prayed carefully, we considered, can we really parent this child? Can this child really fit well with the other kids we already have? Uh, will everybody be safe? All of that, you know, and we we actually said no quite a, quite a good number of times.
0: <laughs> and that's hard. That's hard to do, to yeah. say no, you know? Yeah. So we work with a lot of moms in particular, but parents who have really hard relationships with their young adult children that came to them through adoption and they're very, very discouraged. Have you had that happen with any of your kids where they're angry with you, where they don't want a relationship with you and have any of them come through that? And how has your heart dealt with it?
2: That's one of the hardest things. So first answer is yes. (laughs) We've also dealt with that. We've had children. We we have had and continue in a couple instances to have young adult kids that we really struggle with helping them find their way. We really struggle with decisions we have to make in regard to how we will or won't uh, help them, and whether we're helping or enabling, or all of those kinds of things, Um, and that are not, you know, in good places where we would want them to be. But yet, you know, we can't just step in and take over their life. or we shouldn't. We don't think that's the right thing to do. Um, and in most cases, we can't anyway. But we've had, in particular, one um, one child who really kind of said, I'm kind of done with the family at a certain point. And yes, came back through it, came around. But it was years later, many years. It wasn't next week. It wasn't next month. It was years. And then we had another child that it was kind of more like an experiment for about nine months, you know. where um, she kind of took off and said, I'm doing my own thing. I'm going back to my roots. And and then she is still very connected to her roots. So it wasn't about that, but it was, um, she came back and became even more deeply grounded in our family. And um, so we've had all different uh, versions of that. We have, you know, a child or two, and they're all adults now. So when I say a child, I'm speaking now of adult kids, but who still to this day, you know, I, their way of dealing with stress is I'm cutting everyone off. I'm not talking to anyone or I'm only talking to the people I select and that doesn't include you or something like that. Uh, So, so we trust, you know, one of my, one of my mantras sort of is that the end of the story isn't written yet. You know, we don't know uh, where, how this is all going to be when, when eternity (laughs) comes, Uh, we don't have all the answers, but, Uh that's partly we wrote a book about our family. It's called Are We There Yet. It's like we're never really (laughs) fully there. We don't know um what that but we always continue to uh to love. We always continue to hold out opportunities. So the ones that have said kind of I don't want anything to do with you for a period of time. We always made sure we had back channel ways to at least get messages to them like, Hey, you're still invited for Thanksgiving or Hey, we're thinking about you and uh, hope you're okay. I would' love to hear from you or something and so that message is still there uh even if it's not being reciprocated at that time. I think it's the absolute hardest thing um to deal with as a parent it's i you know especially uh as a mom, a, a mom's heart it's like it feels broken i i've I've really gone into the lamentation mode you know i I've cried out i've Uh, you know I've said things to God like you know we trusted you that bringing this child was the right thing to do and now this is happening how is this good how is this right like what are you doing here um so it's been hard um luckily I have other people in my life uh, who are also adoptive parents who've maybe struggled with some of those things and were able to support each other that's been hard for me over the years because I was a teacher and a trainer and a uh, sort of leader in some of this way and so it's it's hard to take to the same group that you're kind of the leader of you can't say okay now let me tell you my stuff (laughs) you know because they look at you as you're supposed to be the leader so it's a little harder when you're in that role to find your people (laughs) and to find who can who can be your support when you're there trying to support others so you have to take it seriously you have to really look for those opportunities or, or or make create those opportunities but you just really have to keep having that long view, like, you know, the, the end of the story is not written yet, um, and I'm going to trust and believe that it's going to be a good, it's going to be the ending that, that's going to be good for everybody.
0: Well, on that note, I think that's very encouraging for everybody. There's so much more we could talk about, about sibling relationships, but this has been a wonderful conversation. I know it's going to be really helpful to our listeners. So thank you so much, Sue. Absolutely. Thank you
1: for having me. I so appreciate Sue. And what I appreciate about her is her experience, um, but also just her challenging, even my thoughts on keeping siblings together, because honestly, sometimes I feel like it's just easier to separate them out, you know, and deal with one child from a hard place in a family at a time, right? And I know that that's not always the, you know, ideal or even the easiest. There's all kinds of reasons why that, but I think, you know, even just Sue talking about this lifelong relationship and, you know, even going back to episode 100, where we had our kids on, um, even just PJ saying, right, like they're our siblings, they're not going anywhere. So I really appreciated that. But we also wanted to just throw this out there in case you're at home or walking, listening and thinking, oh gosh, we did split a sibling group up, or we are parenting one part of a sibling group and and it was not possible to keep everyone together. And Sue did leave room for that, that there are certain situations where it's not possible for all the siblings to be together. But we want to just encourage you that we can still take the principles that Sue's talking about and this idea that the sibling bond matters, the sibling relationship matters by when at all possible helping our kids stay in contact with siblings who they might not be living with.
0: Right. I mean, like in one of my children's situations, his sibling was adopted into a different country. But we were able to find her and, and create a connection. So I think the sibling relationship is very important. And I appreciated what Sue had to say. So if you want to learn more from Sue, you can do that in a couple of different ways. You can go to her website, which is just suebadeau.com. And her last name is a little tricky to spell, but this will be in the show notes. Uh, She also is the author of some books, including one about their family experience called Are We There Yet? The Ultimate Road Trip Adopting and Raising 22 Kids. You can find all of that in our show notes for this episode at theadoptionconnection.com slash 102.
1: and was created by Lee Rosevier